Part One E of August Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. August Comte and Positivism, by John Stuart Mill. Part One E. The state of sociological speculation being such as has been described, divided between a feudal and theological school, now effete, and a democratic and metaphysical one, of no value except for the destruction of the former. The problem, how to render the social science positive, must naturally have presented itself, more or less distinctly, to superior minds. M. Comte examines and criticizes, for the most part justly, some of the principal efforts which have been made by individual thinkers for this purpose. But the weak side of his philosophy comes out prominently in his strictures on the only systematic attempt yet made by any body of thinkers, to constitute a science, not indeed of social phenomena generally, but of one great class or division of them. We mean, of course, political economy, which, with a reservation in favour of the speculations of Adam Smith as valuable preparatory studies for science, he deems unscientific, unpositive, and a mere branch of metaphysics, that comprehensive category of condemnation in which he places all attempts at positive science which are not, in his opinion, directed by a right scientific method. Any one acquainted with the writings of political economists need only read his few pages of animadversions on them, 4, 193-205, to learn how extremely superficial M. Comte can sometimes be. He affirms that they have added nothing really new to the original aperçu of Adam Smith, when every one who has read them knows that they have added so much as to have changed the whole aspect of the science, besides rectifying and clearing up in the most essential points the aperçu themselves. He lays an almost puerile stress, for the purpose of disparagement, on the discussions about the meaning of words which are found in the best books on political economy, as if such discussions were not an indispensable accompaniment of the progress of thought, and abundant in the history of every physical science. On the whole question he has but one remark of any value, and that he misapplies, namely, that the study of the conditions of national wealth as a detached subject is unphilosophical, because all the different aspects of social phenomena acting and reacting on one another, they cannot be rightly understood apart, which by no means proves that the material and industrial phenomena of society are not, even by themselves, susceptible of useful generalizations, but only that these generalizations must necessarily be relative to a given form of civilization and a given stage of social advancement. This, we apprehend, is what no political economist would deny. None of them pretend that the laws of wages, profits, values, prices, and the like, set down in their treatises, would be strictly true, or many of them true at all, in the savage state, for example, or in a community composed of masters and slaves. But they do think, with good reason, that whoever understands the political economy of a country with the complicated and manifold civilization of the nations of Europe, can deduce without difficulty the political economy of any other state of society, with the particular circumstances of which he is equally well acquainted. Footnote. Monsieur Littre, who, though a warm admirer, and accepting the position of a disciple of Monsieur Comte, is singularly free from his errors, makes the equally ingenious and just remark 
that political economy corresponds in social science to the theory of the nutritive functions in biology, which M. Comte, with all good physiologists, thinks it not only permissible but a great and fundamental improvement to treat, in the first place, separately, as the necessary basis of the higher branches of the science. Although the nutritive functions can no more be withdrawn, in fact, from the influence of the animal and human attributes, than the economical phenomena of society from that of the political and moral. End footnote. We do not pretend that political economy has never been prosecuted or taught in a contracted spirit. As often as a study is cultivated by narrow minds, they will draw from it narrow conclusions. If a political economist is deficient in general knowledge, he will exaggerate the importance and universality of the limited class of truths which he knows. All kinds of scientific men are liable to this imputation, and M. Comte is never weary of urging it against them, reproaching them with their narrowness of mind, the petty scale of their thoughts, their incapacity for large views, and the stupidity of those they occasionally attempt beyond the bounds of their own subjects. Political economists do not deserve these reproaches more than other classes of positive inquirers, but less than most. The principal error of narrowness, with which they are frequently chargeable, is that of regarding not any economical doctrine, but their present experience of mankind, as of universal validity. Mistaking temporary or local phases of human character for human nature itself, having no faith in the wonderful pliability of the human mind, deeming it impossible, in spite of the strongest evidence, that the earth can produce human beings of a different type from that which is familiar to them in their own age, or even, perhaps, in their own country. The only security against this narrowness is a liberal mental cultivation, and all it proves is that a person is not likely to be a good political economist who is nothing else. Thus far we have had to do with M. Comte as a sociologist, only in his critical capacity. We have now to deal with him as a constructor, the author of a sociological system. The first question is that of the method proper to the study. His view of this is highly instructive. The method proper to the science of society must be, in substance, the same as in all other sciences. The interrogation and interpretation of experience by the twofold process of induction and deduction. But its mode of practicing these operations has features of peculiarity. In general, Induction furnishes to science the laws of the elementary facts, from which, when known, those of the complex combinations are thought out deductively. Specific observation of complex phenomena yields no general laws, or only empirical ones. Its scientific function is to verify the laws obtained by deduction. This mode of philosophizing is not adequate to the exigencies of sociological investigation. In social phenomena the elementary facts are feelings and actions, and the laws of these are the laws of human nature, social facts being the results of human acts and situations. Since then, the phenomena of man in society result from his nature as an individual being. It might be thought that the proper mode of constructing a positive social science must be by deducing it from the general laws of human nature, using the facts of history merely for verification. Such, accordingly, has been the conception of social science by many of those who have endeavoured to render it positive, particularly by the school of Bentham. 
M. Comte considers this as an error. We may, he says, draw from the universal laws of human nature some conclusions, though even these we think rather precarious, concerning the very earliest stages of human progress, of which there are either no or very imperfect historical records. But as society proceeds in its development, its phenomena are determined, more and more, not by the simple tendencies of universal human nature, but by the accumulated influence of past generations over the present. The human beings themselves, on the laws of whose nature the facts of history depend, are not abstract or universal, but historical human beings, already shaped, and made what they are, by human society. This being the case, no powers of deduction could enable any one, starting from the mere conception of the being man, placed in a world such as the earth may have been before the commencement of human agency, to predict and calculate the phenomena of his development such as they have in fact proved. If the facts of history, empirically considered, had not given rise to any generalizations, a deductive study of history could never have reached higher than more or less plausible conjecture. By good fortune, for the case might easily have been otherwise, the history of our species, looked at as a comprehensive whole, does exhibit a determinate course, a certain order of development, though history alone cannot prove this to be a necessary law, as distinguished from a temporary accident. Here, therefore, begins the office of biology, or, as we should say, of psychology, in the social science. The universal laws of human nature are part of the data of sociology, but in using them we must reverse the method of the deductive physical sciences. For while, in these, specific experience commonly serves to verify laws arrived at by deduction, in sociology it is specific experience which suggests the laws, and deduction which verifies them. If a sociological theory, collected from historical evidence, contradicts the established general laws of human nature, if, to use M. Comte's instances, it implies, in the mass of mankind, any very decided natural bent, either in a good or in a bad direction, if it supposes that the reason in average human beings predominates over the desires, or the disinterested desires over the personal, we may know that history has been misinterpreted and that the theory is false. On the other hand, if laws of social phenomena, empirically generalized from history, can when once suggested be affiliated to the known laws of human nature, if the direction actually taken by the developments and changes of human society can be seen to be such as the properties of man and of his dwelling-place made antecedently probable, the empirical generalizations are raised into positive laws, and sociology becomes a science. Much has been said and written for centuries past, by the practical or empirical school of politicians, in condemnation of theories founded on principles of human nature, without an historical basis. And the theorists, in their turn, have successfully retaliated on the practicalists. But we know not any thinker who, before M. Comte, had penetrated to the philosophy of the matter and place the necessity of historical studies as the foundation of sociological speculation on the true footing. From this time, any political thinker who fancies himself able to dispense with a connected view of the great facts of history, as a chain of causes and effects, must be regarded as below the level of the age. 
while the vulgar mode of using history by looking in it for parallel cases, as if any cases were parallel, or as if a single instance, or even many instances, not compared and analyzed, could reveal a law, will be more than ever, and irrevocably, discredited. The inversion of the ordinary relation between deduction and induction is not the only point in which, according to M. Comte, the method proper to sociology differs from that of the sciences of inorganic nature. The common order of science proceeds from the details to the whole. The method of sociology should proceed from the whole to the details. There is no universal principle for the order of study, but that of proceeding from the known to the unknown, finding our way to the facts at whatever point is most open to our observation. In the phenomena of the social state, the collective phenomenon is more accessible to us than the parts of which it is composed. This is already, in a great degree, true of the mere animal body. It is essential to the idea of an organism, and it is even more true of the social organism than of the individual. The state of every part of the social whole at any time is intimately connected with the contemporaneous state of all the others. Religious belief, philosophy, science, the fine arts, the industrial arts, commerce, navigation, government, all are in close mutual dependence on one another, insomuch that when any considerable change takes place in one, we may know that a parallel change in all the others has preceded or will follow it. The progress of society from one general state to another is not an aggregate of partial changes, but the product of a single impulse, acting through all the partial agencies, and can therefore be most easily traced by studying them together. Could it even be detected in them separately, its true nature could not be understood except by examining them in the ensemble. In constructing, therefore, a theory of society, all the different aspects of the social organization must be taken into consideration at once. Our space is not consistent with inquiring into all the limitations of this doctrine. It requires many of which M. Comte's theory takes no account. There is one in particular, dependent on a scientific artifice familiar to students of science, especially of the applications of mathematics to the study of nature. When an effect depends on several variable conditions, some of which change less or more slowly than others, we are often able to determine, either by reasoning or by experiment, what would be the law of variation of the effect if its changes depended only on some of the conditions, the remainder being supposed constant. The law so found will be sufficiently near the truth for all times and places, in which the latter set of conditions do not vary greatly and will be a basis to set out from when it becomes necessary to allow for the variations of those conditions also. Most of the conclusions of social science applicable to practical use are of this description. M. Comte's system makes no room for them. We have seen how he deals with the part of them which are the most scientific in character, the generalizations of political economy. There is one more point in the general philosophy of sociology requiring notice. Social phenomena, like all others, present two aspects, the statical and the dynamical, the phenomena of equilibrium and those of motion. The statical aspect is that of the laws of social existence, considered abstractedly from progress, and confined to what is common to the progressive and the stationary state. 
The dynamical aspect is that of social progress. The statics of society is the study of the conditions of existence and permanence of the social state. The dynamics studies the laws of its evolution. The first is the theory of the consensus, or interdependence of social phenomena. The second is the theory of their filiation. The first division M. Comte in his great work treats in a much more summary manner than the second, and it forms, to our thinking, the weakest part of the treatise. He can hardly have seemed, even to himself, to have originated, in the statics of society, anything new. Footnote. Indeed his claim to be the creator of sociology does not extend to this branch of the science. On the contrary, he, in a subsequent work, expressly declares that the real founder of it was Aristotle, by whom the theory of the conditions of social existence was carried as far towards perfection as was possible in the absence of any theory of progress. Without going quite this length, we think it hardly possible to appreciate too highly the merit of those early efforts, beyond which little progress had been made, until a very recent period, either in ethical or in political science. End footnote unless his revival of the Catholic idea of a spiritual power may be so considered. The remainder, with the exception of detached thoughts, in which even his feeblest productions are always rich, is trite, while in our judgment far from being always true. He begins by a statement of the general properties of human nature which make social existence possible. Man has a spontaneous propensity to the society of his fellow-beings, and seeks it instinctively, for its own sake, and not out of regard to the advantages it procures for him, which in many conditions of humanity must appear to him very problematical. Man has also a certain, though moderate, amount of natural benevolence. On the other hand, these social propensities are by nature weaker than his selfish ones and the social state, being mainly kept in existence through the former, involves an habitual antagonism between the two. Further, our wants of all kinds, from the purely organic upwards, can only be satisfied by means of labour, nor does bodily labour suffice, without the guidance of intelligence. But labour, especially when prolonged and monotonous, is naturally hateful, and mental labour the most irksome of all and hence a second antagonism, which must exist in all societies whatever. The character of the society is principally determined by the degree in which the better incentive, in each of these cases, makes head against the worse. In both the points, human nature is capable of great amelioration. The social instincts may approximate much nearer to the strength of the personal ones, though never entirely coming up to it. The aversion to labour in general, and to intellectual labour in particular, may be much weakened, and the predominance of the inclinations over the reason greatly diminished, though never completely destroyed. The spirit of improvement results from the increasing strength of the social instincts, combined with the growth of an intellectual activity, which, guiding the personal propensities, inspires each individual with a deliberate desire to improve his condition. The personal instincts left to their own guidance, and the indolence and apathy natural to mankind, are the sources which mainly feed the spirit of conservation. The struggle between the two spirits is an universal incident of the social state. The next of the universal elements in human society is family life. 
which M. Comte regards as originally the soul, and always the principal source of the social feelings, and the only school open to mankind in general, in which unselfishness can be learnt, and the feelings and conduct demanded by social relations be made habitual. M. Comte takes this opportunity of declaring his opinions on the proper constitution of the family, and in particular of the marriage institution. They are of the most orthodox and conservative sort. M. Comte adheres not only to the popular Christian, but to the Catholic view of marriage in its utmost strictness, and rebukes Protestant nations for having tampered with the indissolubility of the engagement by permitting divorce. He admits that the marriage institution has been in various respects beneficially modified with the advance of society, and that we may not yet have reached the last of these modifications, but strenuously maintains that such changes cannot possibly affect what he regards as the essential principles of the institution, the irrevocability of the engagement, and the complete subordination of the wife to the husband, and of women generally to men which are precisely the great vulnerable points of the existing constitution of society on this important subject. It is unpleasant to have to say it of a philosopher, but the incidents of his life, which have been made public by his biographers, afford an explanation of one of these two opinions. He had quarrelled with his wife. Footnote. It is due to them both to say that he continued to express, in letters which have been published, a high opinion of her both morally and intellectually, and her persistent and strong concern for his interests and his fame is attested both by M. Letre and by his own correspondence. End footnote. At a later period, under the influence of circumstances equally personal, his opinions and feelings respecting women were very much modified, without becoming more rational. In his final scheme of society, instead of being treated as grown children, they were exalted into goddesses. Honours, privileges, and immunities were lavished on them, only not simple justice. On the other question, the irrevocability of marriage, M. Comte must receive credit for impartiality, since the opposite doctrine would have better suited his personal convenience. But we can give him no other credit, for his argument is not only futile, but refutes itself. He says that with liberty of divorce life would be spent in a constant succession of experiments and failures, and in the same breath congratulates himself on the fact that modern manners and sentiments have in the main prevented the baneful effects which the toleration of divorce in Protestant countries might have been expected to produce. He did not perceive that if modern habits and feelings have successfully resisted what he deems the tendency of a less rigorous marriage law, it must be because modern habits and feelings are inconsistent with the perpetual series of new trials which he dreaded. If there are tendencies in human nature which seek change and variety, there are others which demand fixity, in matters which touch the daily sources of happiness, and one who had studied history as much as M. Comte ought to have known that ever since the nomad mode of life was exchanged for the agricultural, the latter tendencies have been always gaining ground on the former. All experience testifies that regularity in domestic relations is almost in direct proportion to industrial civilization. Idle life, and military life with its long intervals of idleness, are the conditions to which either sexual prolificacy 
or prolonged vagaries of imagination on that subject are congenial. Busy men have no time for them, and have too much other occupation for their thoughts. They require that home should be a place of rest, not of incessantly renewed excitement and disturbance. In the condition, therefore, into which modern society has passed, there is no probability that marriages would often be contracted without a sincere desire on both sides that they should be permanent. That this has been the case hitherto in countries where divorce was permitted, we have on M. Comte's own showing, and everything leads us to believe that the power, if granted elsewhere, would in general be used only for its legitimate purpose, for enabling those who, by a blameless or excusable mistake, have lost their first throw for domestic happiness, to free themselves, with due regard for all interests concerned, from the burthensome yoke, and try, under more favourable auspices, another chance. Any further discussion of these great social questions would evidently be incompatible with the nature and limits of the present paper. Lastly, a phenomenon universal in all societies, and constantly assuming a wider extension as they advance in their progress, is the cooperation of mankind one with another, by the division of employments and interchange of commodities and services, a communion which extends to nations as well as individuals. The economic importance of this spontaneous organization of mankind as joint workers with and for one another has often been illustrated. Its moral effects, in connecting them by their interests, and as a more remote consequence by their sympathies, are equally salutary but there are some things to be said on the other side. The increasing specialization of all employments, the division of mankind into innumerable small fractions, each engrossed by an extremely minute fragment of the business of society, is not without inconveniences, as well moral as intellectual, which, if they could not be remedied, would be a serious abatement from the benefits of advanced civilization. The interests of the whole, the bearings of things on the ends of the social union, are less and less present to the minds of men who have so contracted a sphere of activity. The insignificant detail which forms their whole occupation, the infinitely minute wheel they help to turn in the machinery of society, does not arouse or gratify any feeling of public spirit, or unity, with their fellow-men. Their work is a mere tribute to physical necessity, not the glad performance of a social office. This lowering effect of the extreme division of labor tells most of all on those who are set up as the lights and teachers of the rest. A man's mind is as fatally narrowed, and his feelings towards the great ends of humanity as miserably stunted, by giving all his thoughts to the classification of a few insects, or the resolution of a few equations, as to sharpening the points or putting on the heads of pins. The dispersive specialty of the present race of scientific men who, unlike their predecessors, have a positive aversion to enlarged views, and seldom either know or care for any of the interests of mankind beyond the narrow limits of their pursuit, is dwelt on by M. Comte as one of the great and growing evils of the time, and the one which most retards moral and intellectual regeneration. To contend against it is one of the main purposes toward which he thinks the forces of society should be directed. The obvious remedy is a large and liberal general education, preparatory to all special pursuits, and this is M. Comte's opinion. But the education of youth is not in his estimation enough. 
he requires an agency set apart for obtruding upon all classes of persons through the whole of life the paramount claims of the general interest and the comprehensive ideas that demonstrate the mode in which human actions promote or impair it in other words he demands a moral and intellectual authority charged with the duty of guiding men's opinions and enlightening and warning their consciences a spiritual power whose judgments on all matters of high moment should deserve and receive the same universal respect and deference which is paid to the united judgment of astronomers in matters astronomical the very idea of such an authority implies that an unanimity has been attained at least in essentials among moral and political thinkers corresponding or approaching to that which already exists in the other sciences there cannot be this unanimity until the true methods of positive science have been applied to all subjects as completely as they have been applied to the study of physical science to this however there is no real obstacle and when once it is accomplished the same degree of accordance will naturally follow the undisputed authority which astronomers possess in astronomy will be possessed on the great social questions by positive philosophers to whom will belong the spiritual government of society subject to two conditions that they be entirely independent within their own sphere of the temporal government and that they be peremptorily excluded from all share in it receiving instead the entire conduct of education end of part one e recording by bill vorst